Coming up next, The Booketing discusses Room with a View in our greatest episode of all time. Hey everybody, welcome to The Booketing. I just can feel it in my bones. I think this is going to be a good episode. I'm Nathan, your humble and obedient host. I've got, man, who don't I have? I have the scholar who's a baller of reading here. Hey. Brandon Chastain. How's it going, Nathan? How are you? I am doing well. Good Thanksgiving. Do you have a good Thanksgiving? I had a fantastic Thanksgiving. Did you toss around the old pigskin? We did. Did you toss around the old pigskin? Mm-hmm. Did you guys? No. Huh. No, I don't think there was any pigskin tossing. I celebrated Thanksgiving five times and had no pigskin tossing. You celebrated it five times? Yeah. Jake's just a really thankful Ow. guy. He doesn't mean he went to different people's <laughs> yeah, that's houses. that's pretty he low just, for us, he, usually. Yeah, he just made his family sit down <laughs> and eat turkey <laughs> and be thankful five separate times. I made Amanda cook five meals. Five turkeys, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly right. Brandon, why don't you introduce the man who loves Thanksgiving so much? He is one Jacob Kyle Minsel. He is the pastor who's a master of reading. That's me. Beastmaster Funky Town. That's right. And all sorts by. of other things I'm sure that I'm forgetting. He's got lots of accolades and titles, especially in the world of podcasts. Commander Daddy. Commander mm-hmm. Daddy, yeah. That's, that's a really important one. Don't yeah. you forget it. Well, guys, let's just keep talking about some nonsense. Uh, what's that sound? It's the airplane going over, indicating baggage check. The part of the show where we say what baggage we bring to this book. Brandon, what baggage did you bring to E.M. Forrester's Room with a View? Have I even said that that's what we're doing? No, I don't think so. Maybe in the little intro, like post pre-music thing, but no, I didn't say. So we're reading, or we read, and now we're discussing. Room with a View by E.M. Forrester. And uh, what baggage do you bring to E.M. Forrester and to this book, Brandon? I think I touched on it a little bit with context. I was put off by the particular book I have. So, this is the book that the international student gave to me. Right. And it's got the cover that's the movie. Yeah. And this kind of put me off for a while. We got Helena Bottom Carter there. She's got like a giant kind of... 80s do yeah and so i didn't really come back to forster for a while and then Redderman grad school enjoyed howard's end and then just recently while well, i've been driving for work quite a bit so i decided i got into a hemingway kick and then i decided i'd give forster another shot i knew he was coming up this year so i re- listened to passage to india listened to howard's end again and now i've read this one and i i have to say i i like mr forster yeah He's a talented so, dude. So that's my baggage. Not a whole lot of like uh, history with this guy. I had other authors I was reading when I could have been reading him, but now I've read him. So was this your first time through Passage of India this year? I think so. I think I'd read portions. I think I'd read portions of it, of course, when I did like postcolonial studies with Homi K. Baba and stuff like that. But as one does when one reads Homi K. Baba, you said as one does right before I was about to say it. Yeah. Jake, what baggage do you bring to this book? Mm, none, really. I don't have any 
I've never read Forrester, and I am fairly certain I've not even seen a film adaptation of one of his books. There you go. I bring the baggage of... I grew up with the movie Passage to India. Like, I'm pretty familiar with that movie, and it's a good movie. And very kind of mysterious and interesting, and as is the book. But I had never read any E.M. Forrester until a couple of years ago. And then just on a whim, I read Room with a View. And I was like, oh, this guy's funny. And I always like guys that are funny. So <laughs> I thought, I'll read some more E.M. Forrester. He's not boring. Like I, Anytime I discover an author who's kind of from the canon, but also isn't a chore. Actually enjoyable. Yeah, because they're, they're obviously having fun and they want you as a reader to have some fun. I, I respond to those kinds of people. So, yeah, E.M. Forrester. I like him. I've read Passage to India. I've read this. I've read Howard's End. I, I think those are the three, right? I mean, I the the I know he wrote three or four other novels, but they don't really have the kind of name recognition that those three do. Is there any other Forrester that you're supposed to read, Brandon? No, these are kind of the big ones. Howard's End, Room of the View, Passage to India. None others that are like if you were going to read the foundational text is what you'd read so i recognize those i know those names that what other books are there so yep yeah i don't even know what i don't know that i could name another one i mean i guess some people read where angels fear to tread yes okay so there's that one but the other ones i mean he uh, like i we said in context he only had a handful of novels anyways so the fact that three of them are really remembered with where angels fear to tread being fairly remembered that's a pretty high percentage sure so that's half his books. I mean, let's see. He also had he had some a handful of short stories. I'd read The Other Side of the Hedge recently, which is pretty good. It's kind of an allegory. This guy's on this road and refuses to go on the other side of the hedge where people continually are disappearing and it's a commentary on modern life and our refusal to give ourselves to higher things. But there was really I mean, you only got The Longest Journey and Maurice are the two other novels. So And then the gay one that was published after that's his death. Maurice, yeah. That's Maurice. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, there you go. Not a lot of baggage with old Forrester. Nope. What's that sound? Oh, man. Another sound? It's the horns, guys. You hear those horns? I hear them. Aren't yeah, those, that's um, weird. Aren't those full that's of never majesty? happened before. No, this has never happened. This is a bookening first. I told you guys this was going to be a special episode. So... I'm being notified that these horns are ushering us into the Hall of Heroes. The Hall mm. of Heroes? Yeah. We're in the Hall of Heroes right now. I mean, wow. obviously, the three of us basically live our lives in the Hall of Heroes. I mean, that's how yeah. I was, I was born there. Yeah. Yeah. I would have been I've born lived there. there. For, I'll die there. The thing, the thing about being born there is your parents have to be heroes, so... I had to sort of get in as a scoundrel, but you know, <laughs> Jake was born there. You, yeah. Different different people find their way in the Hall of Heroes, different ways. But you know, the Hall of Heroes guys—it's the much beloved segment where we decide who the hero is in the book and whether they measure up to a true hero's standard. Yeah. So let's do it. Let's mm. do it. And there could be more than one. I think I'm being told. It's coming through your headphones. Is it? Yeah, I'm wearing one of those little earpieces, those little clear plastic earpieces, and it's not plugged into anything, but I hear voices in my head, and I wear an earpiece. Okay, who is the hero of this book, and Let's see. are they a good hero or a not? A room with a view character. 
characters. Wikipedia.com. Who is a hero? Oh, Maggie Smith is a is a character. Oh she yeah, really... she plays who, who you'd expect her to play, Miss Bartlett or whatever the the bothersome companion to Lucy. I'll tell you who my hero is. Who's that? Cecil Vise. I liked old yeah, Cecil. He's, he's great. Yeah, he's he's my favorite character at least. I mean, Cecil kind of made this book. Let's be honest. No, Cecil <laughs> both as a character and as uh, a foil. The the book doesn't work without him. It's not nearly as interesting or compelling or fun. And in yeah. the movie, it's one of the main drawbacks of the movie is they got, uh, of all people, what's his face? Mr. Method actor guy, uh, a little earlier in his career. Like, the guy. guy? He, he's retired now. What's his name? Yeah, he played Abe Lincoln and all that stuff. He, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. they got uh, Daniel Day-Lewis? Yeah, yeah, Daniel Day-Lewis plays Cecil and just plays him as a total twit, glowering through his pince the whole time. But... And obviously, Cecil's got a lot of twit in him, but yeah. Cecil's got some redeeming qualities, and yeah. he's an interesting... How he deals with everything with Lucy is awesome. Yeah, I mean, I really like the way he ends things with Lucy, and I just like the way... I mean, to me, he's he's the tragic character of this story. So, you guys don't think he's an absolute villain? No. Well, it's possible we may be ushered into the villain's lair a little bit. I'm, I'm not saying. I mean, all these sound effects are new to me, too. So, I mean, not sound effects. These... Sounds that are occurring as we sit here recording together. Yeah. All these crazy things that are happening. But, yeah, I, I, I like Mr. Cecil. Eager is the villain, guys. Mr. Eager is the Mr. dad? No, Mr. Eager is the British chaplain dude. Oh, right. He, you know, he hates Italians and he hates the Emersons and he talks about how Mr. Emerson murdered his wife in the sight yeah. of God. Yes. It's a bad dude. He well, exists glad- to get us off on the wrong foot. Yeah, I'm trying to actually pull up my notes to this book room with a view. There we go. Yeah, like half the quotes that I underlined were Cecil things. Cecil just... He really did it. He did it for me. Or Cecil. I don't know if it's Cecil or Cecil, but... I moved back and forth between reading and listening, and it was always pronounced Cecil in the audio version. That's good. Which, you know, that's the British way to pronounce it, I guess. Cecil, if you're American, I mean, even when he is just being a twit and a villain, he gets all the best sort of little lines like, Come this way immediately, commanded Cecil, who always felt that he must lead women, though he knew not whither, and protect them, though he knew not what against. <laughs> he just gets a lot of fun little... Yeah, Forrester hates this class of person. But that's the nice thing, is it doesn't actually feel like he hates Cecil. It feels like he just hates whatever society... He hates society. the establishment, and he hates the... Well, he hates the chivalry code. Yeah, yeah. He hates what's been made out of Cecil, but Cecil himself is actually actually has better qualities than what's happened to poor Cecil. All right, so are we seriously going to say Cecil is the... Cecil's our- my hero, and my villains are the Emersons. No, no. George is definitely the hero. I mean, he, he hugs and kisses her in a field. He does do that. Mm-hmm. Sure does. And he comes back and hugs and kisses her again after he has the novel read to them. Right. Mm-hmm. That's true. He does that too. And then he elopes with her. And mm-hmm. the dad's like, you should just abandon reason <clears throat> and follow your feelings or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Abandon say. reason and conventionality and all of the civil institutions that have upheld England for centuries now. Mm-hmm. And follow your heart. Yep. I know. Yep. 
Brilliant. So he definitely is the hero and his dad, you know, he's the eccentric man who everybody doesn't understand. But once you get to understand him, you realize that it's good to stand against society and culture and be your own person and not care what those stiff shirts think. Yeah. Totally. I mean, I don't know. I, I didn't live in Edwardian England. Yeah. Maybe the stiff shirts really deserved it in this particular case. I mean, now that I'm thinking about it, I think Wickham was the good guy and Darcy was actually kind of the villain. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. This book is anti-Pride and Prejudice as they come, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah, in both adaptations of Pride and Prejudice, they take it directly in this route. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, not just in terms of tone and messaging, but also they borrow scenes. Both of them do. Well, we got to have hot Darcy go for a swim. Naked swim and come out of the lake and be confronted with Elizabeth while he's standing there naked. And we've got to have this ending where we stare into each other's eyes and say, my Mrs. Darcy and all that crap. Yeah. Well, you know, we're just not capable of conceiving of anything that's erotic or romantic that doesn't involve a Wickham-like spark of of whatever, which is pretty lame. And that's why all Jane Austen adaptations pretty much fall short because they always have to have a big, like, kissy scene at the end. And, and I don't know. I yeah. get it. I would probably be disappointed if a Jane Austen movie didn't have a kissy scene at the end because you do kind of want it. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but I am, you know, I will admit, like, yep. th- we all were we all annoyed like the kiss- with the We all like the kissy scene. We all like what kissy scene? We all like kissy scenes. Well, I mean, we were all annoyed that Jane Austen didn't give us one in Mansfield Park, so. Yeah. Just to be fair, you know, I'm not going to pretend like I'm entirely above it all, but only mostly above it. <laughs> all right, so Cecil is our hero. Wow. Okay. Yeah. What does that make Lucy? She's just a pawn in the games of men. Yeah, just a pawn in the game, yeah. She's an avatar for the desires of the men who are making her into what she's going to be. She can't even help it. She has to pick between the better of them. For all her talk of wanting to be her own woman, she just gets made by George instead of by Cecil. Yeah. Yeah, she's not much of an independent woman. Well, it felt to me like... a pretty sexist book, in my opinion. Well, it's got this weird kind of thing that seems very identifiably gay to me like the if, if nothing else tells you this book is gay to me the thing that's definitely gay about it is the way that he writes lucy because i just don't know how many gay co-workers or friends or whatever i've had who have the relationship with pretty young females that em forrester has with lucy you know what i'm saying like they have this kind of slightly possessive a little bit protective relationship with this whoever the pretty young woman in their life is like like almost like the gay guy's sort of a bossy older sister or something like that yeah mm-hmm. and that's just a thousand percent the relationship that em forster as a writer has with lucy that aspect made her feel pretty weird and pretty wish fulfillmenty. it kind of kind of felt like we were back in dracula territory or something not like that not that bram stoker was gay necessarily but just that kind of weird portrait of womanhood. What's that sound? Ooh, that's a disc. You guys hear that discordant organ note? Yeah. Well, that c- couldn't be doing anything but ushering us into the Dun-dun-dun. villain's lair. Wow. Uh oh. 
pretty dank. I'm, sc- I'm scared, guys. Yeah. Team Emerson. So you're just you're just calling it. Cecil's the good guy. Yep. And Team Emerson, bad guys. Cecil, Cecil. If Cecil weren't so okay, I guess I can't really pretend that Cecil's a good guy. But I was going to try to actually make a legitimate case that he was. But the true villains are, in fact, the Emersons. Yes, they basically spend the entire book just trying to seduce this a young woman from a broken family. So. Yep, and not just seduce her away from her family and everything else, but away from her moral bearings. Right. They're pretty explicitly anti-religion and anti-government and anti-authority, just anti- Anti-class, anti-everything. Yeah. Hey, Lucy, if you have any kind of foundation in your life, we'd like to undermine that so that George can have sex with you. (laughs) (coughs) All right. Well, for a book that we all said we like, this this is interesting. Is there anything else? I I guess E.M. Forrester says that society is the villain or would he say Cecil's the villain? I don't know. Like who is the villain supposed to be? It's this world with all of its rigid rules and things that are in the way that have to be overcome. The thing the villain the thing that everybody's trying to overcome is the the class warfare of it all and the in the weird social structures and the idea of marrying for it, for advantage and the idea of moving up in the world and maintaining distances between stratospheres and the upstairs versus the downstairs and all that sort of crap. Right. That's the, I mean, that's the enemy of Cecil even. The enemy of Cecil is he feels like he's got to make his way in that world. And so he's trying to find his place and he's been to Italy. So now he feels like he can elevate, but it's not really who he is. And so he becomes just a pompous jerk and (laughs) like trying to fit in the system keeps him from ever being a human being that can appreciate other people as people and stuff like that. And the Emersons have overcome it. And so they're free. And Lucy has all the tools and material to overcome it. And so she finally does. So according to Forrester, society with its conventions and its rules and its expectations and its norms, that's the villain here. Yeah, it's weird because this book has a, to me, strangely happy ending. Like, it feels like it should be more sort of sarcastic and existential at the end. It's, it's weird that they actually get away with it, that they, that they make their Ocean's Eleven-style escape from the casino that is. Well, it's because he's writing that much, well, it's wish fulfillment. Yeah. Right? He wants to get away with it. Yeah. Right. And he wants to show people, he wants to give them hope that if they give in to their lusts, and embrace the dark side, they can get away with it too. There's hope. You're not actually trapped. And if you give them hope, then en- enough people fighting to break the, the system will eventually bring it down. Yeah. And so it's a, he, the reason it has a hopeful ending is because he has a mission. He has a goal. He's not bitterly trying to portray the system as it is, holding everybody down the way it held him down. He's, he's trying to tear the system down. He's he's at work. Yeah. And so he's giving it an optimistic ending and showing the way forward. Yeah, I guess I just felt like there's a certain formula in these books where what we usually do is play up the tragedy of, you know, they, they tried and they had a good release. It's, it's the way that idiots read Anna Karenina, you know, like she tried to find her happiness and she took a stab at it, but society just couldn't let her. 
I was just expecting that this book to go that way because that's yeah. Age of Innocence. That's yeah, how it's that's what I was about to say. Have you guys correctly. have you guys read Age of Innocence? That's kind of the point of that book is that he's held back by this society that won't let him escape. Or oh, Kate Chopin's The Awakening, right? And this I'm is a com- it's common enough a common enough theme. Madame Bovary, yeah, and this is here. Except Madame Bovary, it kind of passes judgment on Madame Bovary, right? Right, but it also passes judgment on society too. Yeah. I don't get the sense that this book is passing judgment on Lucy and George. Right. I get the sense that he's rooting for him, which makes sense. I mean, the guy was a closeted homosexual, so. Yeah. Of course, he would be rooting for a society that would loosen up, man. Yeah, um, I just, artistically, it felt like the wrong choice. I mean, I, yeah, yeah, I, I think there's nothing else maybe to say about it, but I was surprised by the direction, by the ending, and it felt pretty unconvincing. Like, I don't know why any of this is happening. Wouldn't that be a nice world to live in, I guess? But yeah. uh, once again, we failed to say anything nice about a book that we all ostensibly like. Uh, I mean, <laughs> should we... It's uh, funny. That's a nice thing to say. That's a, that's your... But, <clears throat> oh, the, yeah. It is funny. That's true. The book is funny. That's what... <laughs> right. The book is funny, yeah. But it's funny precisely because it's poking fun at all these things and then at the end it's like actually you can just throw these things off and it doesn't matter which kind of retroactively makes it less funny yeah yeah but well guys is there anything else we need to say before we leave the villain's lair i don't think so i don't think so any other characters you guys want to call out or as potential (laughs) villains as potential villains or heroes or just anything else to say about i feel bad for uh miss bartlett really only because she exists to be the classic Austin villain. And so he created her and he drug her through a bunch of crap just to be the villain in the story. And I just, yeah, she, something she about never, how he did that makes me feel bad. That is one thing that is remarkable about Jane Austen is that as much as she punishes certain people and certain kinds of people, you never feel like she's being unfair. Yeah, they, it feels like they deserve it. It feels like they're real, and it feels like they deserve it. And in this case, Charlotte felt she didn't. She felt real, but she felt real enough to not deserve it. I guess I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it didn't quite strike the balance. She's not a caricature that you feel bad just or that you feel good just throwing vegetables at the whole time. <sighs> I had that feeling too. Yeah. I really don't like that in books when I sense it. Dolores Umbridge for me is a classic case yep. of this. And, and yep. you know, like here's a character that was just written to be the most hateful, awful person that you don't like. And she exists in this ostensibly psychologically grounded world. You know, I, I, I'm okay with caricatures and cartoon characters in cartoons and in things that are more exaggerated. But Dolores Umbridge feels like you're supposed to take her seriously, but then she's just gonna do everything wrong all the time i feel i feel bad about miss uh, about dolores umbridge in a different way but i i feel bad about her too for i guess it's similar reasons but it's a different way right like miss bartlett doesn't feel like she quite deserves being put in the positions she does and having to play the role that she has to play mrs or dolores umbridge there's an unfair aggression well you know it's the it's the who she's who Rowling is targeting with Umbridge is an unfair caricature right? in and of itself. And so it's an attack on, it's an attack on just conservative church ladies or something like that. Yeah. Any teacher, any authority figure who takes the rules seriously 
is an idiot who's probably malicious. In in while Umbridge may deserve everything she gets, the person that she's a stand-in for doesn't. Right. And I mean, how many young women and young men has their rebellion against their teachers and stuff been increased by reading that caricature? Yeah, the other thing about, what's her name? I lost her name. Bartlett. Yeah, Mrs. Bartlett is, she never has the upper hand. So, you don't, yeah. like, like she's in this kind of pathetic position from page one. Yeah. And we're and all so, looking down on her from page one. Yeah, everybody's Lucy. looking down on her. She doesn't have, like a Jane Austen villain will often have money or have power in the relationship somehow right. in, a, in a way. She'll that, be mom or she'll be the rich dowager or she'll be the stupid know. wife that somebody married poorly or something like that, but who was beautiful. But she, this character whose name I just lost again. Charlotte Bartlett. Bartlett. Bar- Bartlett. Yeah, Bartlett. Like the president in everyone's favorite program, The West Wing. She she just never has the upper hand. She's She always exists. Yeah. You just end up feeling bad for her. So, I agree. That's a good point. Who else is there? Mr. Beeb? Mr. Beeb. He's all right, I guess. I don't know. He's... Miss well, Lavish. What were we going to say, Brandon? I don't know. I mean, it seems like... I think that Forster fits into that category where he is interested about character, but even more than that, he's kind of interested in the way that he tells the story in his style and in the right. conversation. That's part of the fun of it. Part of the interest of Passage to India is just kind of, he's really, he's just a really talented stylist and writer. Yeah. And that comes through really strongly in his works. So he's more of a stylist, I think, than he is necessarily a character builder. Mm-hmm. And he's also, I think that leads more to. Th- being themat- thematically driven than character driven. Does that make mm. sense? Yeah. Yep. And so, like, Passage to India is more about the themes that he's going for than it is necessarily about the characters. There's there's some depth to the characters. Even Howard's End, it's like, it's all about the story of the relationship between one wife to the woman who's going to take her place, spoilers, mm-hmm. and the home that she wants this other woman to fall in love with in that relationship between women and also classes and all that stuff that happens in that book that's I think just as much of interest to him as the um as the characters right, right. and so he is interested in character but it is almost it is less three-dimensional than Jane Austen for example yeah and I don't think it's necessarily because he couldn't do it I think it was just that was the he was more interested in that other style of storytelling Right. And well, so, the characters for whom he has an affinity or for or, or the ones that he's interested in developing. I mean, the, the, I think the reason we all responded to Cecil is actually because Cecil has a, a number of beautiful moments where he reveals just that little extra bit of depth or brokenness or just. Yeah. And I always like that when a character surprises you in a, and surprises you in a way that seems consistent. I mean, consistency combined with surprise is one of those things that you look for in a book. Yeah. If that makes any sense. So, well, I guess, I, yeah, I'm just trying to tease out why it is that we can pass fairly, I think, fair judgment on the way that he represents some of these characters, and yet all of us really have enjoyed this book. Yeah. Well, why don't I. Oh, actually, I won't do anything because I hear the sound of hair clippers? No. Yeah. What is that sound? I We're going into the salon of style, so. Oh, yeah, it's ah. hair clippers. So, what kind of sound, what, what is that sound that we're hearing that's ushering us in there? Definitely hair clippers. Oh, good. I was M- more like a hair buzzer, you know, whatever they call them, you know? 
Yeah. The thing that they use to... Trimmers. Trimmers, thank you. Which is ironic because this is not a haircutting salon. Clippers. This is like can, an old... We can count on the best groomed of us to know the name. Uh, I didn't catch it. Who knows? Who, uh, Jake. They're, yeah. they're clippers. Oh, well, then that was you, Nathan. I guess you're the best groomed of us. Well, obviously. But this isn't... The, the stupid thing is this isn't a hair clipping salon. This is like a salon, like a receiving room in like a Russian novel or a Paris, you know, a French novel. It's one of those salons. Oh, so it's like we're walking into the first chapter of War and Peace. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's that's what mm. we're doing. So the fact I'm that, with you there. Hey, we, if we've I got, could walk into waiters any, walking around with like uh, delivering bourbon <laughs> to... Men sitting in velvet chairs. Yeah. I'm on board with that. If we want to walk into the first chapters of War and Peace, can I be Pierre? Yeah, I mean, you'll end up as a fat loser trying to kill Napoleon. I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah. Jake can be Andre. <laughs> and, and Jake just dies. Yeah. <laughs> Who does that leave for me as far as the men go? Nikolai, I guess. Dude? Yeah. Oh, I'm the guy. Nat- I'm Natasha's the... brother. Yeah, I'm Natasha's brother. I marry. I don't marry. I'm the one that doesn't marry Sophie, but does marry mary or maria or whatever her name is yeah <coughs> nicholas you don't, you don't marry wisdom Nikolai. but you do marry mary yep <sighs> well sonia sonia hmm. all right mm. well here we are in you the get salon a cool carriage ride i do get a cool carriage ride with the girl that i kicked to the curb yeah. yeah you're not the greatest it'll guy, be the the memory that hunts your dreams for the rest of your life yeah you'll end yeah. up being the best of us arguably a yeah, fairly also- reliable Land owner and hard worker and good provider for your family and just kind of angry all the time. And I'm just gonna die. Yeah. Yeah, but you get an die. awesome death. Well, actually, no, not. <laughs> you get an extended death. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> and you ain't no Ivan Ilyich, though. No, you're not an Ivan Ilyich. The whole book dedicated to my death. Yeah. You, ain't, you ain't no Ivan Ilyich, though. Yep. There's a t-shirt. <laughs> all right. Well, guys, we're in the salon of style. Where we talk about the style or the lack thereof or the words and the way they were on the page and how they yeah. make us feel and all that kind of there stuff. There are words that are yep. on pages yeah, and they work. Yeah, they work quite well in this one, I would say. I'm a fan. I think it's fair to say he's a very gifted writer. Indeed. I would agree with that assessment. Pretty he's tough like, here. He's like a writer's writer. And in those cases, like you're, you're there almost just as much for the style as you are for what's happening in the story. Right. I want to say that it's got, I mean, he's not Dennis Johnson, but Dennis Johnson falls kind of into the same category. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some depth to, I guess, Johnson's characters, but you're there for what you know Johnson's going to write rather than just what he's going to show you with character. Yeah. Well, it's, so, it's a neat trick to be able to enter into the school of, Jane Austen and not make us resent, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot of books we could read where someone's wryly observing upper crust society and we'd just be like, well, I don't know why I'm not just reading Jane Austen instead of this. And that's yeah. what I said with Room with a View. Yeah, which is, which is true. but Or I not Room with a View, Rebecca. Rebecca. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Totally. That's, that's, that's all I have to say. <laughs> Hey, I liked Rebecca. I'm there for you, patron that asked us to read Rebecca. I liked it just fine. I thought it was a good little gothic romance and that Mrs. What's-Her-Face was pretty creepy, Mrs. Danvers. But, yeah. I like the part where she became uh, uh, Captain Marvel. Mrs. Danvers? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't like that part because I was just like, 
that was weird. You're an interesting character, and now you just seem like a shrew mm. with mm. no character. Well, I just felt like it revealed her true colors. I appreciated yeah. that part of it. Yeah. Mrs. Danvers. Mm. That's really Captain Marvel's mother, let's mm. be fair. That's true. She's Mrs. Danvers. But can you be Captain Marvel unless your mom was also Captain Marvel before you were? Um, I'm going to so, say no. It's just like, uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's Captain Marvel after she's been married. Maybe this is an old Captain Marvel. Well, yeah. I assume after Captain Marvel gets married, she stops being a captain and just cooks dinner and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, she's Mrs. America Mrs. Those muffins. Yeah, oh, yeah, she becomes Miss America or Mrs. America. Yeah, yeah. She doesn't become Miss America. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah. There's not a husband that uh, she, she doesn't want to marry some guy that wants her to enter herself in a youthful beauty pageant kind of thing. Well, I'm glad we litigated this. I think it was important. And yeah, I look forward to trying some of Mrs. Danvers' delicious muffins. All right, guys, we're in the salon of style. What else do you want to say about E.M. Forster's style? What do you want to say about it, Nathan? I don't have anything to say. I just wrote down quotes that I liked, which I wrote. I see I wrote down a lot of them, which means I was I was vibing on it. I can read you some random ones. Yeah, just I mean, to... that's what I was going to do. So why don't you read us yours instead? Here's a good one about Mrs. Bart- Miss Bartlett. Miss Bartlett assumed her favorite role, that of the prematurely aged martyr. Yeah, that was a good one. That was a good was... one. We'll rank it out at 10. That was a 10. Well, here's the best part. And here's the real reason. We all like Cecil. This is their goodbye, the final paragraph. She watched him steal upstairs while the shadows from three banisters passed over her face like the beat of wings. On the landing, he paused, strong in his renunciation, and gave her a look of memorable beauty. For all his culture, Cecil was an ascetic at heart, and nothing in his love became him like the leaving of it. That's great. That's gorgeous. And really makes you like Cecil. I want more independence, said Lucy, lamely. <laughs> she knew that she wanted something, and independence is a useful cry. We can always say that we have not got it. Uh, that is good. That's deep. That like, wow, he just explained the 21st century. He just explained Twitter. Yep. And he also just, he also just explained that he isn't completely just for their... I have to take this. Yeah. Jake's taking a call, folks. We should keep talking, Brandon. Yeah, he's not just completely for that idea that they just need to get away and be free, you know? Right. He does have, he does understand it a bit. So, and that he's not completely naive. He's not just all about like the romantics in the early 1800s about getting away and living your libertarian, uh, not your libertarian, your libertine lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Right. That there's more to it than that. I mean, I, I, he definitely has a more subtle understanding of his characters i think than we were necessarily giving him credit for earlier yeah i think he does that's why it's weird to me that he takes the story in the direction that he takes it because it it feels like a shallow ending from someone who does understand that such a thing isn't possible actually yeah and it doesn't jibe with the endings of howard howard's howard's end the end of howard's end howard's end's end has a a more cynical ending and passage yeah. to India, so India certainly has a sad and cynical ending. Yep. So it's just weird to me that this one go- seems to go all soft at the end. Yeah. I don't know what to make of it, except that maybe a little wish fulfillment, maybe a little, maybe like Huckleberry Finn, he didn't quite know how to end it. Yeah. So I think if you, he just had them living in squalor, 
it would go a long way mm-hmm. if they sort of cast off society and then it felt a little tawdry it felt a little wickham and lydia without totally being wicked if it just had some flavor of them paying a price it would it go would a long be different. way yeah. yeah well he does that kind of with howard's end so yeah could just mark it up to the fact that he was what in his 20s when he wrote this yeah was this his first it wasn't his first but i mean was it the first of those three chronologically was yeah. passage to indy was his last right yeah and i think this comes before howard's end but i could be crazy about that howard's end is later yeah yeah so howard's yeah, end is, um, is only two years later but it's still later but he was yeah. begin. he had started this one in ni- like 1902 or something and that would have been when he was oh man his early 20s so this came out right before he turned 30 so that's interesting so, sometimes we expect a lot of wisdom from our writers that they don't necessarily have when they're young yeah so yeah i think that's fair some of them you know they have the genius of style they have the genius for storytelling and so we expect that to have some sort of genius and wisdom behind it and in some and often it doesn't no and that's where a lot of people run into lots of problems is expecting that you know yeah yeah that's true well not the book that i would go to to get your love advice from or your dating yeah relationship advice but i did really enjoy this novel i mean it was i think it was mostly the style that pulled me through i'm just I'm sort of gathering my thoughts here because it feels like we've said more negative things than positive and yet i didn't feel at all negative about this book no i would go back to it yeah i mean like i said i listened to passage to india and howard's end and enjoyed them immensely and read this one and enjoyed it so forrester definitely knew what he was doing yeah his observations are I mean, you can, and acute and- you can tell that he's, you know, his, his style puts him in that firmly in the place he was. You, you said it was Edwardian period. So, mm-hmm. Graham Greene, those guys, you can see similarities in his style. And that's part of the pleasure is they had that sort of elegant, urbane, witty style that's just, it's fun to read. Yeah. More stripped down to the, than the Victorians, but not quite yeah. into the excessive stripping down of a Hemingway or something like that pleasurable yeah it's very pleasurable it just looks good on the page and you like to just soak it in and i would say of the ones we've read we haven't read graham green but we've read mogham those guys Mm -hmm. now i'd say forrester's the quintessential he's kind of the representative and the best of them yes i would rather read this book than mogham i mean pretty much what we're saying is that he's a product of his time like every writer is of his time he Struggled with homosexual. Well, he was a homos- closeted homosexual. Right. All these things about him. That it shouldn't surprise us that in the end, he tells a story whose moral and thematic overtones are things we don't agree with. Yeah. But we can still think that the ride is fun and still have some insights like the one you said about liberty and other observations that he has about people that are actually really keen and insightful. Yeah, from scene to scene, his moral sense is pretty acute, actually. Like, in any given yeah. scene in this novel, you feel like he's observing very accurately who these people are and how we should feel about them. And Yeah, I think that's important to point out, is this is more of our criticisms earlier were the sum total of everything that happens. Right. But, like, scene to scene, he has a very keen eye. Yeah. He's got that Jane Austen ability to peg people pretty well. Yeah. And so, that sense, and even some of the thematic things, like the one you read about Cecil. Mm-hmm. Or Cecil, however you say his name. Yeah. It's, uh, he's got some really valuable things that he's talking about thematically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 
it was more, and I guess, you know, given his proclivities, it doesn't surprise me that he would lean more towards a George than a Cecil. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's, and yeah. so you can kind of understand why, why he ended up where he did there, but that doesn't negate all the other good stuff like the, the making fun of the people in Italy at the beginning, the mm-hmm. the little house that they all end up at together, the hotel, the, the 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 observations he has about people, and then it's it's all it's good, it's useful stuff. So yeah, and just as a little travelogue, it's nice all the all the Italian scenes and the thing when she gets lost with the guide without the guidebook and all that kind of stuff inside the cathedral and stuff. It really puts you there in a way yeah. that that I liked a lot. So, yeah. Well, Jake's abandoned us. Well, yeah, I mean, so I feel like we got to where we wanted to be with this. Because at the beginning, we were talking about it. I I felt like we were leaving something out. Yeah, yeah. The sum total of this book is not just pleasant, but good. I mean, it's a good book. The plot in and of itself and the way the plot resolves is where we would take issue, and rightfully so. But... But we started there, and so we might have put some people off by them thinking, well, that's just where they're going to end, too. And there they go again, hating something good. No, if anything, it proves that plot, while uh, utterly necessary, just isn't everything to a book. I mean, the, the, uh, the feelings that we walked away with about this book had very little to do with the plot yeah. and where it ended up, actually. Because scene to scene, it just doesn't matter that much. Um, yeah what you want is just to spend time in these places with these people and to kind of observe the milieu and get some and good ha- well, observations. Yeah. And have Forster do be the one telling it to you. Yeah. And that yeah, way it's, exactly. it's pretty similar to a guy like Joseph Mitchell or E.B. White with their essays that, yeah, yeah. He's professor Siegel or, you know, the pond or the lake where he, E.B. White went to his vacation. Those are fun to read about, but um, the fact that they're the ones telling you, is really the pleasure. Yeah, when you say that, what it makes me wish is that E.M. Forrester had actually done more essay writing or... Oh, I think if he had run into that New Yorker crowd, he would have. we would be remembering his name with E.B. White and Mitchell as some of the great personal essayists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he he's kind of got... Yeah, he's got that wry style. He's got that keen eye, but his voice is really strong. Yeah. Well, and like both E.B. White and Joseph Mitchell, he's able to be very funny, but also have this under this this underlying current of melancholy. And sympathy, too. And sympathy, yeah. So, he can take it. So, I do think that's just true with most of what I've read with Forrester is that he doesn't necessarily have a villain. Right. He doesn't really, that's not something he does. Even in Passage to India, where he's obviously not fond of these cricket playing Brits in India, none of them are just absolutely wicked. No, when know? the marriage breaks up, or the not the marriage, but the engaged couple, when their when their engagement falls apart and their relationship falls apart, it's pretty devastating. Yeah. Like, and you have to live with that for a while and feel the pain of it and the pain of them not being able to communicate with each other. And he just, yeah, Passage to India is a masterpiece. We we should just do it sometime soon. But yeah. And such a slap in the face to anyone who says, you know, we need, we can only have people of the representative skin color write about any given group because he's, he's able to just imaginatively put himself in all the different classes and races in that book in a way that's really powerful. Yep. Well, Brandon, how many uh, cricket bats out of 10 do you give to Room with a View? Knowing that I would give Passage to India 10, I give this one nine. 
Yeah, if you're going to grade it on an EM Forester scale, then I would do the same. Passage to India is 10. I might even give this one 8 and Howard's End 9 and Passage to India 10. You know, Howard uh, Howard's End is a better book, but I don't know that it's a more enjoyable one. That's true. We're just going to have to do all these. Yeah, we'll have to do all three of them before you know it, but we definitely have to do yeah. Passage to India. Well, all right. Why don't you hum some Mozart while I call out our patrons? It'll, it'll be a very posh Edwardian experience here. I don't know whether they would have listened to Mozart, but... I'm sure they would have. I'm sure they would have, too. Bum, bum, bum. The Anthony. Little Anthony Cigar Store. The Immortal Chelsea E. Do we mean Melanie Oakley? Lily of the Valley. Andrew Nestor Lovebirds. The Keith Master. David's Mighty Men Trucking. John and Jill and Little Baby Max. Jay and Katie, you are cold and love cheese. And also Zia's Loose and Killed Till We Have Faces. Fright Princess of Wonder and Happiness. Can I change songs, too? Sure, yeah. All right, because that one was going to get really high. Council mm. Prime Adam, Nathan Not Me, Ryan the Red Avenger, and Judith the Ladies of Justice, DJ Sammy G, Benny and Dana Tiberius, American Catherine from Yon Window Breaks, Professor and Lady X, Lavender's Green, Dylan Dylan. No, hang on, hang on just a minute. Fair and Fragment Maiden Calling, Anthony was Golden Hate Library, and Lift Liberty in the Pursuit of Cheese, Jujutsu Jeffrey, the Texas Ranger, Midnight Ninja Ellen, Rashurn the Jedediah. Jay of Rack and Ruin, Timothy the Rider at Dawn, Eric and Kate the Camp Champ Kings who are warm and love bees, Maddie Maddie Matman, Sweet Jamie Sunshine, Kyle the Keeper of Eternal Darkness, and Laura the Keeper of Eternal Light, Cold Steel Cody, Jacob the Librarian Barbarian, John Bob the Little and Captain Daniel his mate, Saxophone Alex, the other Saxophone Alex and Dubstep Danny, Ryan the Terror of Texas, and Eric of the Cream and Crimson who no longer are stuck in the cold, please send cheese, Ben Solo and Kylo Ren, John the Cosmic King of Chaos, Matthew the Mind Flayer, Annie Arioka, Gitch Gun, Flight of the Valerie, Thor Ragnar Josh, Stephen Dot Dot Dot, Peglidon, Christopher the Flower Hulk, Lady of the Crystal Lake, Ian the Fair, and Lord of Death, Emily Nash, the Hunter of Dreams, All About the Bad, Mysterious Family, Jeremy the Dark, the Lord of Death, and the Brooding Bride, Maya! Maya! <laughs> There you go. That might be my favorite piece of classical music, I have to say. I don't know if that's like a, a hacky choice, but... It's pretty good. I like it. All right. I think we're done. Jake abandoned us. He told, he told me before we started that he might have to take a phone call, so... And he did. He did. Yep. He does not lie. No, he does not lie. Well, he's the pastor who's the master of reading. He can't lie. He can't lie. Well, he's got the hips that don't lie. He also has hips that don't lie, but neither does his face. <laughs> <laughs>